Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome back to Meet the Early Day Saints. We're joined today by Dr. Cecilia M. Peake, Associate Professor of Classical Studies at Brigham Young University. We're talking about the book Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints. And Dr. Peake wrote a chapter called Receiving Christ, Atonement, Grace, and Eternal Salvation. All right, Cecilia, it's great to be with you today. Thanks. It's great to be with you, too. How did you come up with the title for this one? Because I I imagine it could have been a lot of different things, but you went with Receiving Christ. Tell me about that. Well, originally, I conceived of the chapter as being primarily about grace and focusing on grace. But in all of the early Christian discussions, conceptions of grace, they always link it to salvation and grace being Christ as sort of the gift and For that to become in any way efficacious or meaningful in our lives, leading to the kind of salvation that early Christians, not least importantly Paul, talk about, we have to actually receive that gift. And so that's kind of how that evolved. It really sets the tone because, I mean, it's much different than saying something like earning Christ's grace or (laughs) um, being worthy for Christ or things like that. It's it's really about that gift, that reception. It is. And and. I'm sure we'll have occasion to talk about the meaning of grace, but basically it is, well, it has a number of meanings. It's a very nuanced word, but, you know, one of them is kind of favors given, right? And so if we think of, of grace as a gift and as a favor given, then separates it somewhat from whether we're worthy to receive it or not. That's right. And as you say, there's so many nuances to this topic, and it's it's a topic that has really big implications for practical life. Uh, in other words, you're looking at how beliefs inform how we live and how we act. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if, if I could say just a word at this juncture about the meaning sure. of grace, um, one of its most important developments in early Christian thought is how the Apostle Paul uses it in his writings. And And I indicate in the chapter that of the 150 plus uses of the term in the New Testament and the Greek term for it that is most commonly translated as grace is the word charis. Paul is responsible reliably, right, in the securely attributed Pauline corpus. He uses it 102 times. So it's clearly a theme that was of interest to him. But Paul does some very interesting things with the term. The word is already in common use in ancient Greek. And as I indicated, it can mean a favor, a benefaction. It can refer to someone's appearance. It can mean, it can be a reference to beauty. It can also be a description of someone's benevolence or the favors that they give as a result of their benevolence. But it it seems to me that in a lot of ancient cultures that, and Paul, of course, is a very interesting figure because he kind of has a foot in multiple cultures, you know, Judaism, the Roman world, you know, the kind of Greco-Roman tradition of, of the broader world in which he lives. And so as it's used commonly and the, the conception of a gift, at least, as it's as that notion is commonly worked out in Greek and Roman thought, at least, is that it's very transactional in nature. It, it's a sort of give and take, right? There's this idea that if I give something to another person, then I have a right to expect something in return. In Paul's more immediate sort of political milieu in Roman thought, 
there was this long standing tradition of political patronage. And the idea was that if, if you gave a favor, Romans would describe that as a beneficium to someone, then you, they owed you a duty in response to that. And, and you had Is that every where, right. Like, benefactor comes from. As yes, well? precisely. So okay. our word benefactor comes from, you know, someone who gives a beneficium, someone who gives a favor or a kindness. And there was always the expectation of a return. And another very clearly worked out idea in antiquity is that gifts are given to individuals who are in some way or for some reason worthy of or deserving of those gifts. And so this is the context, but, you know, Paul says very explicitly and his, his grace theology, I think we would say is most fully worked out in his letter to the Romans. And he says very explicitly, he describes Christ's grace as freely given and elsewhere. I'm always deeply moved by the phrase and the idea that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when we were decidedly not, you know, categorically not deserving of it, that's when Christ gives the gift. So it's not with an expectation of, you know, us being worthy recipients. It's not with a guarantee of any sort of return in exchange for it. And I think that has profound implications for how we understand the atonement and how we make that atonement meaningful in our lives if we recognize it as precisely that, a gracious, undeserved gift. It's really unexpected to see Paul turning it on its head. And as I'm reading your chapter, I was surprised to see that Paul was turning the idea on its head. He's taking a term that's in common use that a lot of people know about, and then he's presenting Jesus as a as a revolutionary figure that's actually upending the the idea of this patron client relationship. Yes, precisely that. And and patron client is the exact phrase, right, to use in relationship particularly to describing traditional Roman political exchanges. And and you're right, you know, Paul's treatment of this and and his ideas about who Christ is are revolutionary in this regard. Yeah, I hesitate to use the word, but I kind of am tempted to be like, he sort of like rebranded the concept. <laughs> yeah. like, this is like a rebranded. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about like why why Paul would do that. That seems like a big, big cultural intervention to take this common concept and turn it on its head like that. I agree. And I think and I think that's a, a very good description of it, kind of a, a cultural intervention. And I think it's because Paul genuinely believes and and wants for his audience, ancient and and I would say modern, to understand and believe that this is revolutionary, that this is a favor given out of love. And 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 I think, you know, in Paul's experience, certainly in my experience, I have no doubt in your experience, there are instances, parents frequently, right, who will, yeah. with no hope of return, uh, with very little sleep, and with <laughs> with no guarantee <laughs> of a reward, will generously give to their children. Or, I mean, there are many situations in, with human, in which humans will do this, but I think the, the central idea is that this is something given, the atoning sacrifice, the the gift of grace, the physical manifestation of which is the incarnation of the Son, his death, his resurrection, that those are gifts given purely out of love. And that's a vital thing. It's not It's not as in the traditional Greco-Roman context where there is an expectation that if I establish this relationship, if I give something, then I have a hope of some return in the future. That's not the motivating interest in Paul's theology of Christ and his atonement. The motivating interest is love and wanting to create a path and a means for human beings to be saved. And so Paul's writing about this. He's uh, The earliest writings that we have come from Paul in terms of 
what we have in the New Testament. Yeah. And so he's developing this idea of grace. And then, you know, this first generation of apostles is going to pass away. Time's going to keep moving on. Who were early Christians looking to after Paul had passed on to understand the idea of grace? How was the idea developing beyond Paul? There are two major kind of bodies of figures here that are important. One of them is the the group of the so-called apostolic fathers. And the apostolic fathers were really these first generation of early Christians after the generation of the apostles. And the apostolic fathers often are considered, you know, to have known, like to have had some kind of direct contact with with one of the apostles. Um Clement of Rome, for example, is a figure who was is listed in ancient sources as one of the early bishops of Rome, and he was supposedly consecrated. I think in you know sort of Latter Day Saint terminology, we might say something like ordained or set apart by mm-hmm. Peter, right? So, so second or third bishop of Rome after Paul, as he's traditionally seen. And so you've got him and and other figures who are considered apostolic fathers, who are these very, very early figures who are thought to have had some kind of connection to the apostles themselves. And then still very early, but somewhat later than the apostolic fathers, and often having a connection to them are the so-called church fathers. And this extends over a longer period of time. But the developing kind of theology about grace and very importantly about how grace kind of works out towards salvation. We are indebted to the apostolic fathers and the church fathers for these kind of developing ideas. And one of the things I think we, we see is, is that they really are wrestling with these ideas. You know, what does grace mean? How does grace facilitate salvation? What does salvation mean? How is this worked out? And the implications of those ideas for human behavior, human action, human life, because, you know, you tend to get two sort of trains of thought, if you will, that, that, that are sort of coming down the track in the early Christian era. A number of figures write about grace, write about its connection to salvation in a way that suggests that there is something required of us in response to this grace even though it's given freely, even though it's given without a guarantee of a return, we still, once we receive it, once we understand it, we have an obligation to live a certain way, do certain things, react, respond in a certain way. Alternatively, there are some movements in early Christianity, um, the Valentinians are, you know, significant and kind of famous in this regard, for basically developing the idea that because we have received grace, Right. And and a kind of clear knowledge. Um, we've got, you know, the people who have that special knowledge and our recipients of grace are basically free from the requirement to do good works. And so you see certain early Christian authors addressing that, usually the earliest ones in a way that is sort of trying to correct that notion. Yes, there's grace. It's present even from the moment of creation right? But good works and obedience are still vital for the Christian life. But then that pendulum kind of swings arguably too far, right? And you get a figure like Pelagius, who is, you know, his his sort of theories might be described as a kind of perfectionism, right? Um, what, what we would probably in modern parlance say, toxic perfectionism. And then, yeah. and then you get someone like Augustine of Hippo who needs to address that. So, so these developing ideas really among the apostolic fathers and the church fathers trying to understand that relationship. What is grace? How does it facilitate salvation? And what are the implications of that for our lives? 
yeah, we really get a sense of the kind of network, the web of ideas that all hang together for this. And it's like it surrounds human agency. It surrounds what grace actually does as a power, what Jesus's role was, what humans roles were. And you mentioned, for example, the idea of works like working hard to earn that grace or yes. to deserve it right and then the other there's the other side of that coin is actually the grace is so free that <laughs> i think i don't remember which verse is in the new testament but i think it's paul and he says some people are saying let's sin more so that grace can abound yes like, it is paul <laughs> you're yeah. like yeah that you're like proving grace by actually doing wrong and knowing that grace will cover it there's another idea, and I don't know if this developed early on or later, but I actually heard about this on my mission because I was kind of caricaturing the idea of grace as I would meet with evangelicals and other uh, other Christians and saying, oh, you know, you guys think you can do anything and that now that you're saved. And they would say, well, no, because if you're saved, if you've been touched by Christ's grace, those are the kind of things that you wouldn't be doing. And so you can kind of get a sense of Christ's grace in your life according to whether you're living in a certain way. Did, did that idea crop up very early or is that a later development? You know? It crops It crops up quite early, really. Um, I think some of the earliest thinkers really start addressing this kind of idea. I mentioned the Valentinians and we have, mm-hmm. you know, one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus of Lyon. And I said he specifically kind of addresses the Valentinians in this regard, but he articulates this idea that already in creation, grace is present, but that grace increases when Christ comes, and that's sort of the ultimate manifestation of that grace. And he then goes on to suggest, you know, man can receive everlasting glory, he can receive eternal life, but that's through his righteousness, his holiness, through keeping the commandments. And and so I think for Irenaeus and for many other of the early church fathers, the idea is that the gift is freely given, but it then creates in us this, um, well, the word grace, I mean, the the English word grace is connected to the same root as gratitude. Mm. And though I don't say this explicitly in this way in the chapter, I think the underlying idea is that the gift precipitates a grateful response in the recipient mm. that makes us want to be obedient, be righteous, be more like Christ, keep his commandments, follow his example. And so that's a developing idea. I think a lot of early Christian thinkers felt that there was some risk of pushing too far in the Valentinian direction, which is, well, we have grace, grace frees us. And it does, right? As the developing theories of atonement start to happen, you know, the grace is what frees us from sin and death. But in the Valentinian conception, the idea was it frees us from the obligation to do good works. It's, you know, it's, but but many early church fathers, Irenaeus among them, you know, start addressing that and saying, no, there is a response that is quite naturally precipitated when you experience the gift of grace. And that response is to strive to be righteous, strive to be obedient. So it's it's always this kind of pendulum, right, in, in early Christian thought. Some writers swing too far in the direction of grace is the free gift and therefore I am free from moral obligations, which is not – I mean, as you indicate, this famous quotation from Paul, you know, if we sin so that grace may abound, that doesn't make <laughs> yeah. sense, right? That's, Party that's not on. the answer. <laughs> exactly. And so, and then the other direction is sort of swinging toward, no, there's something required of us, but then you run the risk of, of developing a really legalistic, again, kind of legalistic and transactional definition of grace, which is this kind of, I can save myself, basically, 
I mean, it's not, right. I'm, I'm overstating the Pelagius position, but, but the kind of underlying thinking behind that is, is the idea that humans have a choice in their salvation. And in fact, because we can do it, we must do it. And it's us doing it, right? It leads to this kind of perfectionism that, that then becomes untethered from grace almost because it's too much on us and, and too little dependent upon the gift. That's right. And we see this throughout Christian history. I mean, we see this in the Book of Mormon and, and in how people read the Book of Mormon. There's a verse that talks about we're saved by grace after all we can do. And you can read that in two ways. You can read yes. that as after all we can do. So we have to do all these things. And, and then after we do it, then <laughs> then grace and Christ can, can save us. Can finally become effective. Right, right. Yeah. Or the way of reading it of you know, just in spite of all we can do. That like, is how I have always read it as it happens, right, the latter right. reading. And, yeah. And in the German Book of Mormon translation, there was some like, dip, you know, back and forths about I should how to remember this that. because I served a German speaking mission actually, but oh, but I don't remember that verse auf Deutsch in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so we can see Christians and Latter-day Saints, early-day Saints, Latter-day Saints, all wrestling with these ideas. Absolutely. We see it in the church. So, the rest of your chapter looks at how Christians understood salvation itself. And the Greek word soteria, I may or may not yeah, be saying soteria. that right. Yep. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, give us a definition of that word as the early day saints would have understood it. So it, it means salvation, obviously, and it's an appropriate – that's an appropriate translation of it. Um, it also has, you know, sort of implications of safety, which I like very much. Um hmm. And in fact, um, in some, in many texts, right, it is often used in ancient Greek to suggest uh, a safe homecoming, right, after after an absence away, and a potentially sort of harrowing absence away. And I, I've always liked that notion because, for me, you know, in the end, that's what we're all striving for, right? We're all striving for to come home again and to be saved in that sense. But, you know, for for Christians, it comes to obviously suggest freeing us from sin and freeing us from death, you know, sort of being saved from sin and death. Those those really are kind of the, the central developing ideas in early Christian thought about what, what salvation constitutes. And Christians developed a variety of models, right, for how the atonement actually worked. Like, what were the mechanics of the atonement? And your chapter yeah. is helpful because it lays out kind of... <laughs> kind of these metaphors or these these ways of understanding what it is. So we'll go through each of these in turn. Okay. You lay out four of them. The first one's illuminator, Christ as illuminator. Yes. What is that atonement model? Typically, there were four atonement models and theories of the atonement that developed among early Christians. And we don't we don't tend to use this kind of language in, in Latter-day Saint conversations about what, what the atonement is, but I think they can be very um, – Huh, illuminating about, you know, kind of just ways of understanding it. And so first is Christ the illuminator. And it's basically the idea that, um, that humans are lost, right? We don't have a proper guide. We don't have proper understanding. And so we pursue sin and we fall into sin and we, and we participate in wrong activities and wrong ideas because we don't have someone to, to teach us basically to, to show us the way. And so the, the resolution of that crisis is Christ as the one who shows us and teaches us and illuminates the way, shows us how God intended us to live. So that's one idea, right? That Christ basically serves as the exemplar. And if we follow the example that he sets, then then that is the route to salvation. And we can pull that out of verses from the New Testament, like where the judgment scenes depicted and Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you visited me, etc." 
and then the, they said, when did we do that? And he said, well, when you did that to the least of these kind of a thing. So yeah. in other words, f- doing Christ's works. Yes, and be, showing that. Right. Yeah, precisely. Yep. Precisely that. Okay, cool. So that's Illuminator. The next one is Restorer. Yeah, Christ the Restorer goes back to this idea that God's grace was already present in our creation in that he created humans in the image and likeness of God. And we lose that, right? We lose that through the fall, um, which is a very important idea. And so our, our I guess the phrase they use is um, God-likeness. Our God-likeness is lost through sin. And so Christ is the one who restores us to the image and likeness of God, to our God-likeness. By, and he does this, ironically, by becoming human, right? So mm-hmm. he becomes human and then lives a perfect life. And by his resurrection, then he we get lots of descriptions, you know, in, in, in various scriptural passages that talk about as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, you know, Adam causes our removal from that godlikeness, and it's Christ who, through his resurrection, restores us to that to that likeness. Mm, right. So that's another model. The next one you talk about is Christ as victor. And this is one this is an interesting one. I don't know that that Latter-day Saints talk about this one as much. It has to do with like the cosmic forces of evil. Yeah. And and I think, interestingly, Latter-day Saints don't talk about this one as much, but this is often considered sort of the classic atonement model. I mean, hmm. one could make an argument that this model is certainly in early Christian thought, but even in, you know, many, many later iterations of Christian thought, Christ as the victor is a, a really common, a really common atonement model. And and basically, yes, I mean, this is seen as sort of a cosmic battle for the soul of human beings. There is, you know, Satan and there are demons, and these are very real forces in this model that are fighting this war. And sin and death are also part of this cosmic battle. And and they literally, you know, Satan and his demons and sin and death, you know, effectively attack humans and and keep us from reaching God we become corrupted. And so in the Christ as victor model, Christ defeats Satan. He defeats his demons. He defeats death famously and very importantly. And of course he defeats sin through his perfect life. And, and then through his resurrection, he opens the way for, for all of us to also be victorious over death through him and death and sin. And we can see this in some early Christian art where Jesus is emerging from the underworld and, yes. and open, blasting the gates open, yep. or sometimes Jesus is crushing a serpent's head with his foot. Or, you know. Yeah, and, and we also often see in early Christian art, there'll be sort of a crown of victory that's mm. visually associated with Christ, that he, he is now wearing the victor's crown because, mm. because yeah. of this triumph. Right. Uh, the fourth one is uh, Christ as victim. Many of these are kind of interconnected in ways, but certainly with Christ as victim, the the basic idea there is that we sin, we humans inevitably sin, and and God has articulated that that sin would result in death, right? I mean, this is kind of the model set up in, in the garden, and so our sin is the necessary result of that is that we, you know, we have basically earned death and and earned, you know, the wrath of God in response to our sin. And humans have this kind of, from Adam on, this sort of trajectory toward, you know, corruption and, and the like. And so some kind of offering needs to be made to, I think the word I use in the chapter is propitiate, right? The divine wrath, right? Some kind of, some kind of offering in that regard. And so Christ takes this upon himself. He offers himself as the one to be the sacrifice, kind of the Passover lamb, but also 
also to be the one to take upon himself the punishment that we all deserve and he doesn't deserve. And in doing that, right, he sort of pays the price. He's the one who propitiates the divine wrath, who who satisfies God's demands that resulted from our sins and, and in that way offers us salvation. Right, and th- this is a pretty common one. It's We see Paul talking about it a little bit when he's talking – using Hebrew Bible uh, ideas yes. about the sacrificial – like Christ is the – Christ is the lamb, sacrifice, yeah. uh, paying the penalty. Um, and then it also kind of blended well with up in the mid- medieval ages, the idea of a king's glory or a king's reputation being damaged by things that their subjects do. And like someone has to pay for that, right? Some, like, right. Someone has to the, – the wrath must be unleashed. And so – the victim model has been used in different ways, sometimes in ways that personally don't resonate with me anymore. Um, the idea that maybe like God has to make someone hurt right, rather than hurt being a natural outcome of actions or something like that, or that God's, yeah. like God's offended and so, oh, I need to take this out on someone. Oh, Jesus is going to stand in. So, you know, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's certainly seen that way sometimes, right? I mean, that's kind of this conception of God as a wrathful God and – and as you say, you know, he's got to take it out on somebody. But, but I, um, yeah, that I'm with you. That one, that that idea of an eternal and loving divine father doesn't, you know, resonate as much with me. But, but I think there's more to that. Um, I have a quotation I was trying to find, but not successfully finding here, as it happens. Um, <laughs> that I with the magic of audio, we can pretend you have okay, it ready. Okay, in that this, case, whenever let me you see find if I can it, yes. locate it. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 and this is just me just chatting now, thinking if, as I as I try to find mm-hmm. this. But I, I remember, you know, in the Christ the Victim section, it, it sort of talks about this idea that Christ is basically becomes a sin offering, right? Um, and and a kind of an instrument for regaining the goodwill of deity. This is a very common conception in you know in ancient thought, and and it certainly seems to play out in sort of Jewish practice of offering sacrifices. Mm-hmm. But one other thing I thought was interesting is is that the term used in Greek ilasterion, right, which we translate as propitiation, but that in the in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, right, so the Greek version of of Exodus specifically, that it's the same term used to describe the lid on the Ark of the Covenant, which is the mercy seat. And so I, you know, so even though we tend to kind of connect it to this, I don't know more kind of wrathful and demanding vision of God, it still is connected with his mercy. Hmm. In Hebrews, of course, this 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 idea is very clearly worked out, right? That, that he goes in, he's the last and final, to use the Book of Mormon turn, right? The infinite and eternal sacrifice, the, the last one that ever has to be made. But But I think those, I'm less comfortable with the idea of a wrathful God demanding, you know, that his anger be appeased. But but there is, or that his reputation be, yeah. But I, so but I, I think it's like, it's more kind of the idea of there is again this sort of cosmic Old Testament, New Testament, early Christian thinkers, this idea that somehow something needs to be offered as an exchange that secures the mercy. I, I think is an idea we do see, even if I'm a little mm. bit uncomfortable with it. And oh, it's there yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and I and I think you know one of the things I like so much about. Um, and, and found myself really very moved by in, in studying and, and digging more deeply into these early Christian theories is 
it's not just one. I mean, in a single author, you'll see multiple descriptions and discussions of or language that seems to suggest Christ as the illuminator and then simultaneously Christ as the restorer, Christ as the victor and Christ as the victim. And so one of the things I really like about sort of how the early Christians work through these ideas is that they are trying to come to terms. They're trying to comprehend something that really is incomprehensible. I think that really speaks to why there are so many models. Agreed. Right? We see people really wrestling yes, with, and we still with do. what it means and how it works. Right. I, I mean, I rem- years ago, I was asked to, to give a talk in a sacrament meeting in my ward about how the atonement works. I think that was the language that was used when the invitation was extended. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that is the easiest question and the most difficult question imaginable. Like you can give just, you know, we can repent, you know, we have, because of Christ's atonement, we can do this. I mean, full stop. How does it work? We have no idea. I mean, we honestly, I I should say I have no idea. I I don't understand the real dynamics of this, of this act, this series of acts. I don't understand how, and he suffered, what that really means. I don't understand you know, how he overcame death, but I absolutely believe that he did. And it eludes our minds in many ways. And so I like the vocabulary that early Christians developed to try to understand how it, how it works and what that means for me as a Christian. And it gives us a lot of models to choose from and, and think about too. We don't have to lock into any particular model of the atonement or, or think that we have it mathematically figured out. I, I feel like this is just how relationships work. Um, God didn't give us an instruction manual that lays out the quantum mechanics of how the atonement works. Right. God gave us stories about people and yes. God, you know, and God became human to show us what it was like to be in relationship. And so for me, the mystery preserves the reality of relationships, like relationships can exist because they're not this mathematical equation. Yeah, they're very Sometimes we wish we had the math, things. but we don't. And, and they're yeah. constantly evolving and constantly changing. And, and our relationship to and understanding of the atonement and of Christ's grace and of the Father's grace is also very complex and always evolving. One more thing I want to point out as well is you talk about how Augustine came along and there was a pivotal moment here where Augustine kind of focused more on how Jesus saves the individual, whereas previous Christians were focused a lot more perhaps on how Jesus would save us collectively. So there was a shift toward looking at how the atonement applied on an individual level rather than a collective level, which is probably a false dichotomy. Yeah, I agree. I I think it is a false dichotomy. And I I think that, you know, Augustine is as he's working out these these issues and these questions, it's it's connected as I mentioned before, to him as kind of a response to, well, I mean, it's part of his developing theology and thinking about these things. So that's not, you know, that's not new, but I mean, new in the sense that, uh, I mean, a lot of Augustine's thinking addresses, discusses, concerns itself with grace. I, I mentioned Irenaeus earlier, kind of responding to the Valentinian overcorrection, so to speak, and he's trying to bring yeah. them back. no, Grace doesn't mean you're freed from all moral obligations. It doesn't mean that you're saved and therefore you don't have to do good works anymore. And then, so so there's that early kind of effort to to correct that, what would we call it? That sort of justification for, you know, for, for potentially bad behavior by thinking, oh, I'm saved by grace and that is sufficient and now I have no moral obligations. But then, as I said, that kind of, that kind of move toward 
behavioral considerations, you know, how should grace look in our lives? Um, Pelagius, Augustine believes that Pelagius carries this too far. And this idea is that, and, and I will, if I may read you a quote from Pelagius, yeah, which is quite late in the chapter. But Pelagius, as indicated in the chapter, you know, this idea that, you know, we're created in God's image and, and we have complete freedom and therefore we are left with that excuse because we are because we are completely free because because we've been shown the way then we have the obligation to take that way and we're left with that excuse if we fail to so pelagius a citation from him we cry out at god and say this is too hard this is too difficult we cannot do it we are only human and are hindered by the weakness of the flesh what blind madness pelagius says what blatant presumption by doing this we accuse the god of knowledge of a twofold ignorance ignorance of God's own creation and of God's own commands. No one knows the extent of our strength better than the God who gave us that strength. God has not willed to command anything impossible. Now, it's a great quote, but it can possibly develop into this dangerous kind of perfectionism, again, to use that term that's so popular right mm -hmm. now, kind of toxic perfectionism. Um, this idea that since perfection is possible, it is therefore obligatory. Right. If we can do it, then we right. must do it. And, you know, Augustine ends up really responding to that. And and he reminds us that God is a merciful God. And the phrase he uses that, that God is wanting to, quote, heal and restore wounded human nature, human nature, but also individual human nature. And I think that's that's very important for Augustine. Right. That we are justified. The grace inspires us to good works. But our good works alone would never be sufficient. They would never be sufficient. And, and that's not something to be ashamed of or to worry about overly, if that makes sense. I mean, we, I think we as humans, some of us at least, still tend to have this very transactional kind of idea about how we relate to God. Mm -hmm. This, If I may share just a very brief personal story, which I shared a few years ago in a women's conference address, um, I always – talk about, I'll talk to people about grace, I think in a way that is generous and expansive. But in my own life, I had this moment where I realized that I always thought of my relationship. In fact, no matter what words I use, that deep in my core, I actually believed that in order to receive God's blessings, I had to perform in a certain way. And so, um, mm -hmm. I had someone very, very dear to me who, um, almost died. And it was lots of very difficult circumstances that led to this eventuality. And um, it was someone I was very, very close to. I was in graduate school at the time. I heard of this person being rushed to the hospital. I went home immediately to my hometown in, in Southern California from Berkeley to be with this person. And I remember after being in the hospital, seeing this person I loved that she was almost, she was at death's door, might not make it through the night. And I went home and I knelt down to pray and I thought, I, immediately as I started the prayer, I was just brought up short. I thought, I have nothing. Mm. I have nothing big enough, good enough, nothing in my life that, that reaches a level that would be enough to give in exchange for this person's life. Does that make sense? And, mm -hmm. and I just was, I was just stopped. I thought, no. No, I have nothing, no promise I can make, nothing I have ever done, nothing I could ever do would be enough to, to kind of offer in exchange for this person's life. And then 
I just begged for mercy. And I think that's the first time in my life I had a glimpse of what grace really is. This realization that uh, I, I cannot do enough. And it, and it wasn't a burden that destroyed me. It was an idea that freed me in the end. We are totally dependent on mercy and on grace and on a gift that we cannot repay. But it precipitates in me a gratitude that makes me want to give back, to bless, to obey, to help, um, to be gracious to others. And then those things, the things that we do, aren't transactional yeah. anymore. They're freely given gifts as well. Exactly. And we can enjoy them for the grace that they are. Like the grace becomes reciprocal. I think that really frees us to enjoy uh, living a disciple's life um, and, and to be changed by living a disciple's life. And instead of feeling that constant need to prove or earn something, I think that, that really makes a big difference in, in how we live as, uh, as Latter-day Saints. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's Cecilia M. Peake. She's Associate Professor of Classical Studies, the coordinator of the Ancient Near Eastern Studies Program at Brigham Young University. She earned her PhD in Ancient History and Mediterranean Archaeology from UC Berkeley. And her chapter in this book is Receiving Christ, Atonement, Grace, and Eternal Salvation. Again, the book is called Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints. Cecilia, thanks for talking to us today about atonement and grace. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.